The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is Dr. Jennifer Ferrand. I'm honored today to act as guest host for my friend, colleague, and regular host of this podcast, Dr. John Santapietro. I'm a board-certified clinical health psychologist with 16 years of experience in Hartford HealthCare. And much like Dr. Santapietro, I've spent the past year working directly with patients experiencing and coping with the ramifications of the pandemic, and also acting in a leadership role addressing the wellness of healthcare workers to ensure their safety, adjustment, and professional fulfillment during these uncertain times. I'm honored to join the team at the Quell Foundation as they continue to lift up the voices of our healthcare professionals who are still living with the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic. Let's get started. I'm so pleased to be here today with Mandy, who is a pediatric ICU nurse, and we're just so thrilled to be speaking with you today about your experiences as a healthcare professional during the pandemic. So thanks so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm such a fan of the Quell Foundation, both for personal and professional reasons. I just couldn't be more grateful to have this opportunity. So thank you for having this conversation with me. Wow. So why don't you start with that? Why are you a fan of the Quell Foundation for personal and professional reasons? So I first became introduced to the Quell Foundation about two years ago after Kevin actually spoke at my best friend's job. And she immediately called me and was like, there's this guy, Kevin Lynch, like you have to look him up like you guys need to talk. And flashback two years ago, I started applying to school and looking at some of his scholarships I did apply and then COVID happened, so I decided not to go back to school last year, but I'm really excited to share that I am a Quell Scholar recipient for the 2021-2022 school year. So they're helping me reach my goals and I'm so aligned with the vision and goals that they have for mental health and breaking down that stigma. That's amazing. So I was so interested to hear that when we first spoke a few weeks ago. Can you tell us about your decision to defer your psychiatric nurse practitioner training? Last May, I was supposed to move to a new city and start a new psychiatric nurse practitioner training. And I was looking back on the essays that I had written to be admitted to that program. And all of them were focused on the healthcare and the mental health of healthcare providers. And as I was revisiting what my motivation for going back to school was, I did not find that it was in line with my morals or what I wanted to do with my life to abandon my colleagues and my peers during what was an unprecedented time for being at the bedside. I didn't think that I could in good conscience two, three years, a decade from now, help people work through the PTSD of COVID if I left just as things were getting complicated and tough. Wow. Wow. So you made the decision right at the time when COVID was really ramping up. 
Yeah, I had just signed a lease for a new apartment in February, and three weeks later, the world shut down. And I started to call into question, where was I going to be as the effects of COVID reached where I live currently in Cleveland, Ohio? And how was I going to look back on my time during COVID and what I was doing at that time to be a better bedside provider? Yeah. So tell us what kind of work were you doing at the time? Where did you work? What were you doing? I was working in the pediatric ICU in Cleveland, Ohio, where I still am a nurse. I float between the pediatric ICU and the cardiothoracic ICU. Really at that time in COVID, pediatrics never really felt the brunt of COVID that adults did. That's not to say that we weren't still going into work every day, not sure of what patient population we would be caring for, but a lot of what we were dealing with was when and if it would hit us in the same way. There were lots of talks of whether or not we would be floated to adult ICU units. There Mm. were talks of whether parts of our units would be closed to become adult COVID ICUs. So all of that was just in flux. We didn't know what we didn't know. I mean, we're still in that place 12 months later of there's so much unknown having to do with COVID and especially in effect of COVID and its effects on children. Right. Wow. So what were some of the challenging aspects of working in the pediatric ICU setting during COVID? So I think the biggest complication of working in pediatrics during COVID were the visitor limitations that were put in place. There is nothing more abnormal than what happens in the pediatric ICU. Parents are never supposed to have to lose their children. That's just biologically not the way that life is supposed to go. So it is a tragic place on the best of days. But when you're telling people that they have to make decisions regarding the care and livelihood of their children with either by themselves or with one support person at the bedside was really psychologically detrimental for a lot of families. Their grieving process, which was already attenuated by the fact that they were losing a child, was further complicated by not having their support systems with them, family members who needed to say goodbye, whether that be siblings or grandparents. It really threw us for a loop, not being able to do those proper grieving practices in pediatrics. Right. And you were really, as a nurse, so compelled to put the patient and the family first. I'm wondering, what was that experience like for you and your colleagues? I think that it was a time where we really had to get down on our patient's level, like sit with them in chairs directly across from them, explain that there were no words and no preparedness for what we were all facing. And it was also a time where we had to get creative. We were relying on FaceTime meetings In periods where it came to be that a child was not going to survive, we would work with leadership when it was appropriate for an additional family member or for a sibling to say goodbye. And those were all really complicated situations that we navigate on a case-by-case basis. Wow. And were, were children dying from COVID? So we did not have any losses from COVID. We did have COVID positive patients on our unit. The other diagnosis that we had on our unit was, it's called MIS-C, so it's multi-inflammatory syndrome, uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. So it's a child who had a prior COVID diagnosis that then has this multi-system response. So that was more of what we saw in the ICU. So heartbreaking. And you said last time that you already assume that you're meeting families on the worst day of their lives. And then to sort of like think about that during a pandemic when parents can't, maybe extended families can't be with their family at the end. 
They're, right. They're absolutely. And yeah, that's exactly how I come into work every day, whether it's a coworker or a family member that I'm encountering. If you are in the pediatric ICU, you're exactly right. You are having the worst day of your life. That is, mm-hmm. it is never a good place to be. And it was further attenuated by the global trauma that everyone in the ICU is experiencing. So you're meeting a family on their worst day of their life, but you also have providers who are navigating having children going through schooling at home. Everyone was dealing with an external trauma that added to a place that is already so difficult to bear and witness. You mentioned last time that you and your colleagues questioned a little bit whether you had earned the healthcare hero designation. Tell me about that. That's such a powerful statement. Yeah, I was thinking about that this morning. Prior to our conversation has really just been kind of like a meditative experience for me this morning, thinking back to last March and every month and challenge since then. I can think back to the day that I got my COVID vaccine and actually calling my personal therapist in tears because I was worried that I didn't deserve the vaccine dose that I was getting. There is something both humbling, terrifying, and rewarding about that label of healthcare hero. It's so multidimensional and complex because I think in some way, accepting that label means turning inward and accepting that what you do is hard the work that you do is extraordinary, and that you should be proud of that. And I think that that's a tough place to be with all of the other feelings and opinions and complications happening during COVID. Taking that moment to say like, I can do hard things and I do hard things professionally. That's such an honor and a weight to bear. It's just such an interesting sentiment, I think, for people during Mm -hmm. the pandemic. And, you know, you also spoke so poignantly about the model of healthcare that you were raised with, right? Because you have physicians in the family, right? My father is a psychiatrist who is very excited about my career choice. And I spent the last decade really coming to terms with the epidemic that is the mental health of healthcare providers. My mom was an OBGYN. And when I was a sophomore in college, she died by suicide. She was a surgeon. And that was honestly kind of my first exposure to suicide and opened this whole world to me of the blight of physician and bedside provider burnout that I was completely unaware of even as I pursued a career in healthcare. So this year has really been this really interesting culmination and reflection of all of these things that I knew from my life prior to COVID that were kind of illuminated for the general public during this last year where Mm -hmm. people are talking about provider burnout. And I'm like, oh my gosh, people understand these things that I've been writing about and have been concerned about and passionate about for years are now on the front page of newspapers where people are concerned about the well-being of their providers. I think that is one of the, I would say, one of the more reassuring things that has come from COVID is, is that I do think that we are at a point where healthcare providers And the work that they soldier and shoulder together is seen in a new light. Wow. Oh, oh my God. First of all, I'm so, so sorry about the loss of your mother and so grateful and honored that you're here talking to us about it. We have so much to learn from your experiences and from the experiences of the many, many healthcare providers who struggle. I do know that currently we know that over at least one physician a day dies by suicide in the United States 
in any other profession, I just, I feel that that's unacceptable. And I, I remember being 19 and seeing these statistics. And I think the first statistic that I saw was that somewhere over 500 physicians were committing suicide every year. And I was like, mm-hmm. why am I just now learning about this? Like, why are we not doing something? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in the last 10 years, I, I know that the conversation has grown, but those numbers are still staggering. Staggering. And, you know, it's just this expectation that we have blindly without even meaning to that people who take care of others are also taking care of themselves. And I think that's such a false assumption for so many of my peers and my colleagues, because so many people who are so good at taking care of others, leave it all there. They leave it all in the hospital. And what they leave for themselves is so minimal. You know, I think it's true that so many healthcare professionals give their all to the profession. And you spoke yourself about really truly showing up to work every day. And it strikes me that there really is a cost. There's a personal cost to truly showing up. So I'm wondering what what you think about that. And for you during COVID and beyond, what has been the cost of that dedication to your work? So I try not to think of it as a cost. I try to reframe it for myself as as an honor and a privilege to be able to have the ability to show up for my patients every day. And I certainly wouldn't give that away for anything. I have noticed during the last year that it's taken finding my no to reserve my space for what I need in order to be able to perform at work. And that means more of protecting my personal space and my personal energy. It means saying no to relationships that don't build or serve me. It means saying that I need to rest when I've worked four shifts in a row. It means not over committing in ways that are not helping me show up when I need to. And how would you say your mental health was during COVID, during the worst of it? I think we had touched on this when we talked last time and kind of reliving that moment of when I felt the effects of COVID on my personal mental health. I had gotten to a place where I had kind of started to space out or felt like I was starting to graduate from needing as frequent of therapy. Not that one ever graduates from something that is a lifelong continuum, but you have good stretches and you have bad stretches. And I remember it was the, I can always remember to the day, it was the second week of March and I was in my apartment complex and I was in a room with three other people who are not healthcare providers. And I had a panic attack, my first panic attack in probably five years. And I felt it so acutely that- Did you know what it was? Yes. Luckily, I was grateful that I did know what it was because it was something that I had struggled with anxiety after my mom's passing in college. So I was lucky enough to already have been connected to a provider and to know that I needed to reach out. And I remember calling her and being like, I don't know how to orient myself in this world anymore. I don't know how to exist outside of the hospital living with this fear, this truly debilitating fear of transmitting COVID to my patients. And truly the the honor of knowing that I, unlike so many Americans, got to continue to go to work. I got to three times a week, I got to go to the hospital and work alongside people who started the pandemic as my friends, but very quickly became my family. And knowing that I had that honor and that privilege was overwhelming to me. 
Mm-hmm. And it sounds like there was something really supportive and helpful about being around your colleagues and having a sense of kinship with your team. Absolutely. I don't know how I could say it enough how grateful I am to have worked where I do during the pandemic, which is not something that I thought I would be saying a year out, you would think that you would get sick of spending all your time and all of your time outside of the hospital with the same group of people, but they truly have become my family. And making sure that I kept that family safe, that family, including my peers and my patients, became my number one priority. Mm -hmm. I think we spoke last time about the reverse of that fear, that fear of bringing COVID home. But I was so kind of, for a while, obsessed with the concept of making sure that I stayed as safe as possible for my patients, wondering Mm -hmm. with every social interaction that I had, like, would that walk be worthwhile if a child got COVID because I was a vector of transmission? So even just going out for a walk by yourself was a source of, of anxiety and worry about what that might bring back to your patients. Right, absolutely. And I have always been a very active and mindful individual. Like that is, I start every workday, I wake up an hour early so that I can do 30 minutes of physical exercise, whether that's yoga or cycling or meditation. So for the thing that I turned to for relief to become a source of anxiety was also such a complex and emotionally difficult challenge for me. Yeah, that's fascinating. And you're you're talking about, you know, some, I think, almost some like core competencies that a person has to have in order to manage burnout or the stress of their workplace. And one of those, I think, is this sense of kinship and teamwork. But this other one is this more nebulous idea of self-care, which everybody identif- defines in a different way. But it sounds like you have a really good idea of what that means for you. Right. Absolutely. I'm kind of imagining it in almost in terms of like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs of like Mm -hmm. what you need just to be able to be a a functioning provider and the things that some of us know that without that we we cease to function. So kind of suddenly my in-person meetings with a healthcare provider were taken away and my my stress relief of going outside, of walking my dog, of running outside, all of these things became untenable and stressful. So Mm -hmm. I kind of had to break down to ground zero and start from scratch and building a routine that was morally and physically and ethically and emotionally sustainable while also checking the news and reading all of these new updates. Like we talked about what stress level I would say that I was in at that point in March. And this being after a decade of working with a therapist, And I would still say that in that moment, like in that room with that first anxiety attack, I would absolutely quantify like my emotional stress level as a 10. Wow. So what kinds of things did you work on in treatment? Honestly, a lot of it was a lot of guilt and shame, which is so sad and even hard for me to hear myself saying a year out that the things that I was struggling with most during COVID were feeling guilty and shameful about things like going to the grocery store or going on a walk with someone. And also those same feelings of not being deserving of the care and consideration that I was receiving as a healthcare provider. I felt guilty that people were checking in on me and asking like how I was doing. Really just this 
hesitant to step back and realize that I needed to find new ways to take care of myself as much as I wanted to help take care of others during this time period. I was thinking about it this morning and there were also very poignant times during this whole year where I kept thinking to myself, like, I'm so glad that my mom didn't have to live through this period as a healthcare provider. I'm so glad that people that I know that struggle with mental health were not at the bedside during this time because it was so hard to Mm -hmm. not be able to be the kind of provider and friend that you wanted to be consistently throughout all of this. You know, you said something last time that I think is relevant here, which is that mental health can be the difference between life and death. And that you know that, that recognizing and treating a mental health problem is just as important as recognizing and treating a broken arm. Right. Absolutely. And I feel so grateful for that insight every day that through the many challenges that life has thrown my way and through processing my grief that I have come to understand that mental health is just as serious as physical health. We still have stigmas against mental health, but sadness can be overwhelming. And that fear and that knowing that sadness and depression can overtake you in the same way that one can feel like they're drowning is something that makes all of this and one's wellness feel so much more critical. I mean, it feels like to me that normalizing needing help is almost our biggest barrier in healthcare. Like that, what if it was normal? What if it was a normal thing to do to be able to take your distress temperature, so to speak, and to without fear or guilt or shame to seek help for that and for help to be forthcoming and available and accessible to you? You're absolutely speaking to things that are at the core of my my soul and what I feel is my purpose and being is that honestly, what if we approached mental health as public health? What if mental health was proactive rather than reactive? What mm-hmm. if we assumed that in being human and showing up at the bedside, that you incurred some mental and emotional stress that you weren't prepared to deal with? And what if instead of asking you to find the energy and the self-reflection in yourself to ask for help, what if we provided it for you before you had to ask? That's brilliant. What a different world that would be if we promoted a society of healthier healthcare providers. Wow. So you're already a healthcare professional, and pretty soon you're also going to be able to call yourself a mental health professional. So let me ask you this. What, what will you do different as a mental health professional? Or maybe what do you recommend that the healthcare system do differently, like structurally, uh, systemically, or what do our leaders need to know? So that's a really interesting question and one that I honestly think about every day. I think that there is a role for mental health professionals who specifically address the need of first-line responders and healthcare providers. And honestly, I think that in the same way that we have mandatory health insurance, I think that We need to regulate mental health care in provider training programs. I think Mm. that new graduate nurses need to be screened regularly for, like you said, a temperature check. However that screening would look, I think we need to follow the people that we're training and make sure that they are healthy during their training. 
That also extends to physician training and medical and residency hours. I just think that we have to get in front of the problem instead of trying to put a Band-Aid on a hemorrhaging wound. We have to shift our focus from before to before from after. We need to be proactive with our providers rather than reactive. And that's something that I'm so excited to start working on. But I'm so grateful for my time at the bedside in really informing the way that I see the burden that healthcare providers incur. Yeah, you have to walk the walk. Right, and absolutely. And understand the experiences of the frontline healthcare worker, for sure. Right, I totally agree. And that was so much part of my decision to work in the ICU was I always knew after my mom passed that life would bring me back to being a mental health care provider. But in order to do that, I wanted to dig even deeper into physical health before I made that switch to mm-hmm. understand the body in order to better understand the mind, because I think that both are so, so necessarily connected. Yeah. Well, and the mind is in the body. Right. Absolutely. Right, right. It's all the same thing. So how did your healthcare system do during the pandemic? Once again, like I said, I was in pediatrics, so our situation was a little bit different, but I do feel like our leadership did a really good job of letting us know where we could potentially be going. And they did provide us with the support that we needed to know that management was there to talk about exposure, to provide PPE, to discuss what would happen if we had another unit and what we needed staffing wise. We also started a uh, peer support group on our unit and throughout our pediatric hospital so that we had trained peer supporters at work and started to, I think, utilize those in a more effective manner. I think that, honestly, our, our leaders did a good job in leading us what through what kind of felt like guerrilla warfare. You didn't know mm-hmm. where the enemy was or what it looked like or how it was going to morph, but... I think that the best way to lead during this situation was just by being there and being present with us, which is something mm-hmm. that I think that our management did very well. Yeah. And I mean, it strikes me that it sounds like they communicated transparently and openly with you right from the start and acknowledged that they, they didn't know any better than anybody else did what was going on, but that they were in it with you. You know, I've right. heard so many stories of um, senior leaders in healthcare putting on scrubs and getting into the milieu and doing the work. And I think that says so much for sort of this idea of coming together as a community. And this is a universal experience that we're all participating in. Absolutely. I think that the best way to lead is by breaking down those traditional hierarchies. And instead of saying, I will lead in front of you instead taking the approach of, I will lead alongside you. And I think that that is so much more poignant to the human experience to have someone who is your peer, who is literally your right-hand man also giving you support. And I think peer, the idea of peer support is also just like fundamental in terms of what we should be doing as a healthcare system. So here's another challenging question for you. If you are providing peer support to a nurse, what are the primary things you would share? I think that one of the most helpful things about having a peer supporter is having someone that one understands your role and the limitations of your role. But I think that a truly beneficial component of it is having someone say, 
I may not know exactly what you're going through in this moment and your experience is unique and personal, but your feelings are valid. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's really what peer support is about. It's not about me telling you that you lost a patient and that's okay because it's not. And we never should get to a point as providers where we think that that is okay. But I can turn to you and say like, you are grieving and your grief and your connection to your patient is real. And I am here for you. Yeah, I think you've just said something really integral about empathy, which is that accurate and helpful empathy isn't about taking away somebody's problem. It's about accurately appraising it and walking through it with them. I think that sometimes in order to identify with another person, there's this very human response to almost mid-sentence interrupt as someone explains an experience that you have felt yourself to be like, oh my gosh, you too, I've felt the same way. But that's not always and rarely is that the most therapeutic response that people need during a crisis. They don't need you to normalize their feelings. They need you to validate and empower them to honestly, to feel the full depth and range of their emotions. Not Mm -hmm. to say like, yeah, you lost that patient. We all did. And it's a tragedy for everyone. No, no, no. Tell me about your relationship with this patient and this family. And let's take my hand and let's walk through your grief together, knowing that as you feel all of the things that you have someone to support you. Yeah. And that reminds me of self-compassion. And I guess we could say the importance of self-compassion and other directed compassion, you know, that what sort of, I guess, the core competencies that we need are the capacity to be kind to others, the same way we're kind to ourselves, and the capacity to recognize what's happening, both internally and with others. And then also this sense that like we're having a communal experience, right? That this is shared, it's universal, and that that everybody suffers, but that suffering together is one of the fundamental ways we can bear it. Even as you described that, I imagined one person struggling with a load that is then distributed across the hands of Mm -hmm. many, and it Mm -hmm. does not take away from that person and the emotional weight that they are bearing, but it helps redistribute it in a way that is more balanced and even And then even imagining one of those people turning to the side and see that they have help and support and seeing how different that looks than from one person feeling as though they're carrying the weight of the world alone. I love that image. And and it makes me think about, you know, what if the healthcare system were to do that, were to think about sort of redistributing the load so that it doesn't weigh so heavily on certain roles or, or people or elements, I guess, of the system, but that it is a more equally distributed weight shared by others in a way that is felt and understood. I couldn't agree more. I love the way that you describe that. That is absolutely beautiful. And what a perfect tie-in to self-compassion in order to take part in that kind of vision. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us today or haven't that we haven't touched on or any other lessons learned that would be important for us to hear? I think your last point on self-compassion is probably something that a lot of healthcare providers have struggled with during COVID. There were just some points where it didn't seem like there was room to also take care of yourself. And I think one thing that I wish that I could 
share with so many of my colleagues and other healthcare providers that I know and don't know is that caring for yourself does not in any way diminish the amount of empathy and care that you have to provide for others. There is no fixed amount of empathy that your infinite wisdom and soul contains. Like you contain multitudes and feeding yourself with that same grace that you give to others in no way diminishes the multitude of impacts that you can have outside of yourself. Mm -hmm. That's so well said. So let me ask you this. Are you back to running outside? Are you taking care of yourself in that way again? I am I am back to being outside. I am still wearing a mask, but I have found a way in life that is very different from the way that things looked a year ago. But in so many ways, I am so grateful for the place where I am. And I have found in myself and all this time alone, I've found a friend. I've become my own friend and I've learned to really appreciate the silence in the space that COVID at one point I would say demanded and required of me, but allowed me to experience. So yeah, I'm back to taking care of myself in a very unique and different way. That strikes me as the difference between loneliness and solitude. Yes. Loneliness is when you're alone and you're upset about it and you want to be with others. And solitude is when you really appreciate being alone and what that sort of affords in terms of the capacity for self-reflection and things like that. I hear people talk about this anticipation of life after COVID. They're like, everybody is vaccinated. Like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I think I'm going to continue to sit in this space that I've carved out for myself. And I hope that weeks and months from now, I continue to remember that I am a safe space and a safe home to return to. That's so beautiful. And I have to say, I'm so touched by our conversation today. And thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I love this vision of of self-compassion and the future of healthcare that we've kind of manifested and created together. And I'm so excited to see what we can do. Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic, with Dr. John Santopietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editor, Vlad Radu, film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. 
If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512 